Sunday morning, we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians together, a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. There are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. If you don't have one, and uh, just get their attention, they'll get one to you. And that way you can hear the word and also read it. And then please, God wants everybody to own a Bible and to read it and to know it. And so if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or that what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke God to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own will, but each the one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, uh, go and eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not for your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Let's pray together. And that's what we want, Lord. We want the Christianity that is described in this book of yours, this Holy Bible, and that you empower us to live by your Holy Spirit, the life that Jesus lived. And we pray that you would just speak to us from your word today and that you would continue to fashion our lives into the image of Jesus. And we thank you for your word, how diverse it is, but all of it intended to do that. And we thank you for the big things that it changes and speaks to us about, the little things that it changes in our lives. We want everything to reflect Christ. And so 
Speak to us through your word, by your Holy Spirit this morning. Thank you for the privilege of being able to open up this book, to have the author, the Holy Spirit, with us to teach us. And thank you that we get to share this meal of your word together here as well. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. From all the way back in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians through to uh, the end of chapter 10 and maybe dribbling a little bit over into chapter 11, the Apostle Paul has been addressing this thing called Christian liberties. And Christian liberties are those freedoms that God has given to us as Christians. Um, they're the things in life that the Lord neither prohibits nor does he encourage. There's no thou shalt not and there's no thou shalt about it. Uh, the amount of food we eat, there's nothing where it says, you know, when you make your oatmeal in the morning, it has to be a half a cup of oats or whatever, or all the way around in life. There's a lot of things that the Bible does not address specifically. And the reason that God doesn't address those is there's liberty to go in different directions related to uh, those particular issues. And so uh, that's what the Christian liberty is. And he has instructed us all the way through these chapters about how to exercise our liberties wisely. In other words, how to exercise them for our own good, but even more importantly, how to exercise them for the good of other people that are around us, both those who are already Christians and those who are unsaved, or they're not Christians uh, yet. And in our passage here this morning, the Apostle Paul largely concludes his instruction on this subject, and he does so in a way that shows us once again how important the subject is to Paul, this whole issue of liberties and how to properly handle them uh, as uh, Christians. And so he, it, it was important to him, it's very important to him that it is clear to these Corinthian Christians and to us concerning what it is that he is saying. They say about teachers that desire uh, clarity related to their teaching that they must not teach uh, merely to be understood, but they need to teach with a clarity so that it's impossible for them to be misunderstood. And that's what Paul is doing here. He doesn't always do that related to everything, though clarity is his aim. But this issue of liberties, he really camps on it by the Spirit of God. And so it's very, very important to him. And, uh, and, it's, and he, he wants it to be important to us, the instruction is. Now, this is... Um, uh, as Paul closes this section on the Christian liberties, he, as he closes it, is very much in his heart that he wants to be so clear that, uh, that he can't be misunderstood. And he does two things here in order to accomplish that. He says, first of all, he wants them to know, these Christians, that liberties are liberties and liberty and sins are not liberties, that he's been emphasizing that our freedom to engage in these liberties, and he's been very, very strong related to that, 
But with this kind of carnal group in Corinth, he wants to make sure that no one misunderstands him to be saying that liberties concerning liberties also means that we have the liberty uh, to sin. And so he's going to illustrate that from a part of their daily life that uh, that was just, you know, the, again, the daily of their life. The second thing that he wants to speak in this kind of concluding section of all of this is that Paul restates the points he's been making all along concerning limitations that we should put upon our liberties as necessary. And Paul is not afraid, neither is the the Lord, not afraid of repetition. Repetition is important in teaching. And that's what we do here. Like, for instance, as we come to a passage like this, we will consider this morning to be a successful time in God's Word if we walk away and we say we understand what this Bible, this passage says to us about our relationship with the Lord. It's not supremely a pep rally, though I'm not uh, down on that kind of a thing. We want to understand what God's Word has to say. And so anything that's worth learning, we typically we don't learn significant things in life by just being told one time, ah, got it, etched in stone, I'm set, I never need to hear that again. Usually it just starts to begin to click for some of us about the third time we hear it. And then it starts to solidify and God is reminding us continually of lots of different things all the way through the Bible, speaking of them over and over and over again, because we need, have a need to be reminded of those things over and over again. And so Paul repeats himself because of uh, its important place in learning. Now, we begin in verses 14 through 22 with Paul's uh, focus here that Christian liberty does not include the freedom to sin. And because Christian liberty never includes the freedom to sin, he tells us in verse 14 that we are to flee from idolatry. And the word flee is a very, very strong word. It means to run as if your life depends upon it. How many of you, just a show of hands, have ever had to run as if your life depended on it in something in life? Some bully, some something, some car coming at some dog of the neighbor or whatever. But when you are running uh, as if your life depends on it, that is a, that's a dramatic thing that you're feeling at that moment. And so even if we, uh, even if you are a person who's never been in that kind of a place, you get a sense of the urgency that he has. Flee from idolatry. Now, all along, Paul's been telling his readers and us that we have, and this was the application for them 2,000 years ago, that uh, they had the liberty to buy meat that was being sold in the marketplace, even if that meat had been offered unto idols in one of the pagan uh, temples there in uh, the city of Corinth. And now Paul takes up the question of whether... Christians should participate in the feasts or the religious activities or the worship services of the temples themselves. So apparently, 
There were Christians who took the idea that I have a liberty to eat meat that's been offered unto idols and then assumed that they also had the liberty to attend the worship services, so to speak, at these temples and engage in the religious activities that were going on there. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Now you've moved from liberty and into sin. And you've slipped from one to the other because you're lacking discernment related to that. It'd be easy for someone in Corinth, maybe a Christian there, to think to themselves, well... You know, I'm saved, and greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I'm not in any danger of being converted to some other religion. I don't believe that these idols are anything. Um, It's just a great place to get a great meal. And in the ancient world, the temples are where everything was happening. It was like you take television, you take movies, you take clubs, you take restaurants, you take concerts, you take everything and roll them all together, and all that stuff was happening at the temples. At night, that was the place to be. The food was good, the wine was good, the meal was good, the music was the best that the city had to offer. You rubbed elbows with everybody in the city. If you wanted business connections, if you wanted uh, any kind of a connection, they were all going to be there. And so for a Christian to say no to heading off on Friday, Saturday night, Monday night, Wednesday night in order to enter in to this whole big activity, they were shutting themselves off from the main entertainment and uh, enticement and excitement of the city of, uh, of Corinth. And yet Paul forbids them doing that, and he tells them and he tells us why. And he declares that in verse 15 that any sensible person will see that he's right. He illustrates it in verses 16 and 17 from the Lord's Supper. And the point that he's making concerning referencing the Lord's Supper or communion is that uh, those who partake of the Lord's Supper or communion, they are, they are rightly identified by other people as being worshipers of Jesus. Then he goes in in verse 18 and he references Old Testament Worship, the offering of sacrifices by the Old Testament saints unto the Lord. And he said that when, essentially, that when men and women would come, bring their sacrifice, their peace offering, offer it unto the Lord by virtue of the fact that they would come to the temple, offer the offering, a portion of the peace offering would be given to God, a portion would be given to the priest for his sustenance, a portion would then be given back to the worshiper. He would eat it there within the precincts of the table. It represented, or of the temple, and it represented him fellowshipping with God. For the Jew to eat was a mystical, to have a shared meal with another person was a mystical experience because if you would take of the same meat or you would take of the same uh, loaf of bread, I would eat it, you would eat it. Now we're united. That same loaf, that same steak is now inside of each of us and it unified us. And as it related to God and as it related to God's people, then they were happy to have that union occur. That's what they were there for at the temple. But a Jew would never have a meal with a Gentile because he didn't want to be united with a Gentile 
uh, mystically or otherwise, nothing to do with it. But when someone would go to the temple and they would offer and then eat the meal, it identified them in the mind and the eyes of everyone that this is a worshiper of Jehovah God. And the and then Paul brings the point to the idolatry in verses 19 and 20. And he said, in the same way, if you partake in the idolatrous activities at the pagan temple then you're going to be identified as an idolater, as a worshiper of these false gods that are at the pagan temple. And so somebody sees you here over here and you're witnessing to them, telling them about Christ, their need to be forgiven, that he forgives you and he gives you a whole new life and he gives you the power to live a completely different life. And this is the greatest life that a person can live. And your every thirst in your life spiritually is going to be met. Every hunger in your life is going to be met. This is the greatest life. It's incomparable. And you're doing all of this sanctification boasting in the Lord, and then they head down to the temple on Friday night, and there you are at the services. And one thing's coming out of my mouth, but I'm living a different thing. And they're saying, I can't figure out whether you're about Christ or you're about God or whether you're about these idols because of you engaging in the activities at the temple. And and so he, Paul warns that People are going to come to conclusions about you involving yourself there. And it wasn't with Paul that the idols or the demons that uh, represented by the idols could do any physical harm or any spiritual harm to a Christian. But what they could greatly damage is to damage our reputation or to damage our identity as a Christian in the eyes of everyone who is there. Now, Paul's elaboration to Christians who were doing this at at Corinth is very beneficial. And he says in verse 19, by forbidding them to partake in idolatrous practices at the pagan temple, Paul said, I'm not saying that the idol is anything, and I'm not saying that it has any power in and of itself. These idols were made of stone. They were made of wood. Uh, they were these things. And what good is an idol? The prophet Isaiah brings up related to them. They worshiped these idols, but then you had to carry the idol from one room to another. I don't need a idol or a god that I have to carry. I need a god who can carry me. It doesn't make any sense at all. So it doesn't have any legs, or it has legs, but it can't walk. It has a mouth, but it can't speak. It has eyes, but it can't see. It has ears, but it can't hear. And so he says, I know the idols are nothing. There's nothing of them at all. There's no place for superstition related to them at all. But he does go on to say that there is a spiritual dimension to the worship of idols, but it doesn't come from the idols it comes from the demons who are part of that kind of religious ceremony and religious error and deception. One of the things that's important to remember about Satan is he has just one goal related to your life. He has just one goal related to the life of every man, every woman, every child in this room, on these grounds, in this city, around the world. And his one goal is 
that you will die in your sins. That you will die before you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and head into a Christless eternity. That's his whole goal. That's the big game. He plays a little game to get people there, but that's the big goal that he has. Satan cannot be saved. He cannot be forgiven. His uh, The die is cast related to him. He is going to spend eternity in a, an eternal lake of fire in judgment that was made for him and the angels that followed him in his rebellion. And his lone goal is to draw every single man, woman, and child that he can into that same eternal destination that he is going to experience. I mean, how wicked of a heart can that be? I mean, if I were... you just even fallen as a human being, and I were to realize my eternal portion is going to be this, and then my goal would be to tell everyone, don't follow me, stay away from me, don't make the same mistakes I did, put your faith in Christ. But the devil is so such a hater that he is going to go there himself, and he wants to drag every single person into that uh, place uh, uh, with him. And he'll use whatever means he has to in a human life in order to accomplish that. And for some people, it will mean drawing them into a religion that ignores Jesus and the need to be saved, or it rejects Jesus of the need to be saved. There are some people who are born, they have a religious bent about them. I'm one of those people. So for me, when I, the, just the whole thing, you just know it when you're a kid. It's not about a bigger or a better or this. I didn't care about cars. I didn't care about the house. I don't care about different things. Now I'm really concerned about them. But back then I didn't. But, but that didn't hold anything to me. There was this side of what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Is this just... You know, eat, drink, and be merry, and and we die. If this is it, this is this is the cruelest hoax that you. I was a little melancholy, I'll admit it. But I mean, this life is. I just I couldn't see an end game to it. If I can't understand where this is going and how it gets there and what the meaning is, then I don't understand the two steps I'm taking right in front of me. So that was my bent, and there's a lot of people like that for me, that are like me. So Satan comes in, he knows we have that religious bent, and he knows we're incurable related to that. That's We're searchers. That will be there in our lives. And so what he does is he says, all right, you got the religious bent, I'm going to drive you into a religious system. Or I'm going to get you exposed to a religious system that has nothing to do with Jesus and has nothing to do with a gospel or a way of salvation and and rejects him, in fact, and I've got you right where I want you. Then there's another person who doesn't have a religious bone in their Bible, in their body. There are complete materialists. All they think about when they had their paper route was how to take this, double the money, and then get this, and then pay some other kid to deliver the papers while you then went over here. And the whole thing is 
it is all about material things and it is all about position and moving forward and all of this kind of stuff. And Satan comes along and he says, I can play that game too. And I will keep in front of your eyes the next biggest and newest version of whatever I know you are a sucker for. And I will keep you living for those things until your dying breath, if it keeps you from ever being exposed to the gospel or being serious about being saved or serious about what happens uh, in eternity or after this life. And he's just as successful with that person. There are... There are demonic spirits behind these things that are worshipped. The worship of all idolatry, there is a demonic element to it. And idolatry is the worship of any created thing. That means there's only, there's God and then there's creation. That's all. It is the worship of anyone or anything but the true and the living God, the creator the God of the Bible. But this is how he works. Satan's original sin uh, was pride. I will, I will, I will, I will set myself up as as the Most High in his rebellion that he uh, led against the Lord. And it's interesting to realize the very first sin introduced into a perfect creation was introduced by Satan through pride in his I will, I will, I will, his self-will. I reject God and his will for my life. I'm going to live for my will. And that's why, the, that's why God hates pride. One of the reasons. The Bible says six things the, the Lord hates, yea, seven are abomination to him. And he begins with a proud look. Why Why does he begin with pride? It was the first sin that stunk up this creation. It was the first thing that produced that odor in heaven, in that rebellion. And of course, pride is at the center of all sin because pride is the big I, me, and my, and I is the central letter uh, to sin. It's always the exaltation of my will over and against God's will. And so he, he is, he is, uh, his sin was pride, the leaving of the worship of his creator, the God of the Bible, in order to live a self-willed life. And there is a spirit behind that kind of thing and that kind of thinking. And if they participated in the religious services at the local temples, then they were identifying themselves with the demons behind those idols. And Paul says, not only is that not a good idea, that is forbidden. He says further in verse 21, that as Christians, having identified ourselves with Christ, we must not be identified with idolatry in any way. We are not to send mixed signals about our lives. And we identify ourselves as Christians with God, the God of the Bible. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That is who we identify ourselves with. That's who we claim to represent in this world. That's the one we worship and that we magnify and we live to give give him glory. And we are to reject anything and getting involved in any idolatry that creates confusion in people's minds about that. 
People need to know that we are 100% about this, about the God of the Bible, living for him, faith in Christ. He's my Savior. I deny myself. I take up my cross and I follow him. And I consider it to be a privilege to do that and not have them look and say, I think he's kind of a hybrid. I think he's a Christian, but I think he's into this thing over here. And I don't know what to, you know, what sense to make out of him. Our lives are to have a clear, clarion, sounding, and bell, and call to the world that communicates one thing. We are about this God. He is the only one we worship. We do not make him share us with anything else in this world, much less the idols of this world. And so Paul said, idolatry is not a liberty, idolatry is sin. And they needed to hear that. They needed to, they're they're getting this confused in their minds. And he comes in and says, it's wrong, don't do it, you can't have it both ways. And I think that this is the one of the dangers to those Christians who today who, just like Corinth 2,000 years ago, they live with uh, determination concerning their liberties. And they're so determined to live in the realm of liberty land in their Christian life, no matter what the cost, that over time, very often, the lines start to get blurry in their convictions and in their Christian life. And then pretty soon they lose clarity in terms of what is a liberty and what is a sin. And then they start to consider uh, sins to be a liberty as well. And they become so consumed with their liberties that under the direction of their flesh or unfortunately under the direction of a spiritual leader, even Christian leaders, they live their life absolutely jammed right up against this line where liberty meets sin. They, they just live right on that border. And then after having camped so close to sin for such a long time, they start to then get glimpses of sins that they want to engage in right on the other side of, of the fence and on the other side of the line. And then they cross over into sin. And in their mind, they still think they are engaged in Christian liberty. And there were some in the church at Corinth that had fallen for this. And they really needed someone to come and tell them, you've left the land of liberty and you are now uh, living a life of sin. And this happens in a Christian's life when living as close to the world as possible becomes the priority of their Christian life. It becomes the focus of their Christian life as opposed to living a life that is supremely about loving God and honoring God and obeying God and representing God. And this thing is making me crazy. I mean, it used to be, when I first got saved back in 1980, it was, it was enough to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
on a daily basis. That's a tough enough trinity or triunity for us to take on uh, day in and day out as Christians. But now my head is spinning, and I'm a pastor. And this whole emphasis on liberties, this whole emphasis on having it both ways... This whole emphasis on living as close to the world as you possibly can and still remain a Christian. I don't get that. And I don't need that kind of a reinforcement in my life. And I'm glad that it wasn't a part of my Christian heritage because it's nonsense. And I know where it leads. It's not what we're called to. When you have a cliff... And here's the line, the liberty goes up to here, and then the cliff right here, and there's the line. I don't want to build my life next to this cliff. Because all i got to do is just have one misstep or one strong wind, and I go over the edge. I'm going to build my Christian life way over here. Like the psalmist said, you've set my feet in a broad place. He didn't say, you set my feet at the edge of a cliff. I don't want to live at the edge of a cliff. I'm not strong enough to do that as a Christian. Nobody is. I want to be over here where I'm a hundred yards and I'm a hundred miles away from the sin that could take me captive. I don't want to go and take my liberty right there and subject myself to the temptation of it and then one day losing the battle and find myself that I've gone from liberty and into sin. This is crazy today. This is crazy Today, since when have we stopped as Christians considering it something honorable and wonderful to be outstanding as a Christian, to really live this thing, to experience it in its fullness, not some hybrid of the world and God. He's going to talk in a moment about the God is a jealous God. God doesn't, he doesn't share us with anyone. Not, why would we have him sharing us not only with idols, but with liberties? What, is, what are we thinking when that becomes the focus of our Christian life? As the light of Christ becomes so dim, I'm not yelling at you. I'm pushing against the Spirit. Has his life become so unattractive? Is there nothing there that draws us? Is the Spirit of God so dead inside of us that excellence isn't what we want in that life, but we want some mediocre, liberty-driven thing that puts us on the edge of something and nobody can figure out whether we're serious as a Christian or not? I hate it. I hate it. And I don't need the aggravation. Again, we're facing enough as Christians without being encouraged to live our Christian lives in some dumb place that is a liberty, yes, but it is so inferior to what Jesus died on the cross to purchase for us. That life, that's the life we want to explore. That's the life where there's no regret at the end of our life. When we close our eyes and there's that last shudder and the breath goes out and we're face to face with him in heaven. That's the life that we want. There's a Corinthian spirit today. 
I don't say who, I don't say what. All I know is I'm having to fight it like I've never had to fight it before as a Christian. And I don't like it. And I don't like that people are being drawn into it. It reminds me in the Old Testament of a man by the name of Lot. He was the nephew of Abraham. And they're both prospering like crazy. So they've got big families, they've got big flocks, and they can't graze all these flocks all in the same place. And so Abraham says to his nephew Lot, amazing grace in doing this. Lot should have been the one that moved. But he said, listen, there's contention between our herdsmen. Though All the land is before you. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to set up your your property. If you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. Gives the decision to Lot. Lot looks at it and he sees the well-watered plains of Jordan. He says, that's what I want. And so what did he do? He took and he pitched his tent right up against the city of Sodom. He settles in right there in that place. He is, did he have the liberty to do it? Yes, he had the liberty to do it. But he was, that liberty was going to take him into a temptation related to sin that he was not going to be able to handle. And so he takes and he brings his family, he brings his wife, he brings his children, and he plants them right up against Sodom. The next place we see him in the Bible, he's living in Sodom. The next place we see him in the Bible is he is in the gates of Sodom. He's become one of the leaders of uh, of Sodom there. And then he ends up appallingly in the Bible when a group of sex Crazed men have come to the door of his house and are going to try and beat the door down in order to get to two angels that are in the room so that they can rape him and have sexual relationships with him. He comes to the door and he's going to try and reason with him and say, I've got my two virgin daughters. I'll give them to you instead. And you think, what in the world is this guy doing in all of this? And then ultimately as what began as an exercise of liberty. It ended up crossing the line into sin, and he ends up losing everything as a result of it. He loses his wife. He loses his marriage, his wealth, his reputation. He ends up living in a cave because he used his liberties to plant himself too close to sin. And in verse 22, Paul reminds them and us, that we, our God is a jealous God. And he has a right to be jealous. The Bible says that we have been betrothed to God and to Jesus as a chaste virgin. He doesn't have to share. I don't share my wife with other men. I'm a jealous husband. I don't do that. And God does not want to share his chaste virgin, his people, his Bride of Christ with other idols and other things within the world. And they needed the reminder that God is involved in this. It's not just you and your liberties. There's a God involved in this who saved you and you're in a relationship with. And he calls on them to remember that fact that God is a jealous God. 
And you don't want to provoke him to jealousy. He did not pay the price that he paid on sending his son to die on the cross so that we can live a Christian life like the ones that many people were living there in the church at at uh, Corinth, where not to worship what demons have the rest of the world uh, worshiping. People have a right to be able to see holiness in our lives, to see purity in our lives, to see a different kind of life, to see a life that looks like Christ, and to be attracted to God on the basis of that. I don't know how many how you came to know the Lord. Maybe some of us in the room came to know the Lord because you said, I once knew a Christian. And man, he just lived right in the middle of I mean, his liberties. That was all. I mean, you looked at that guy and you could know him for five years and never know he was a Christian. I mean, he lived so close to the world. He had it all down. This was the line. He's going to camp right there. He's going to live right there. And, and he's not going to move from that. And that life so impacted me that I wanted to be a Christian too. How many of you are in the room here today are Christian because of that witness? Quick show of hands. For the tape. Nobody raised their hands. How many of us are Christians in the room today because we saw somebody and we said, that's, that's the life I want. That's not half in, half out. That's not somebody who's come to Christ and looks like they're regret it because of what they're missing and they gotta go camp near it. These people, this person is completely changed. They have a love. They have a joy. They have a meaning about their life and a passion and a purpose to their life that I have never ever seen before. And I want to be forgiven of my sins. And I want to know that I'm going to go to heaven after I die. And I want to know God as a friend and as a savior. Those are the people. Those are the people that stood out and attracted us to Christ. And we saw them at school and we saw them at work. We saw them in the neighborhood or in the family. We watched them at church even before we were saved. Those are the people that have the impact. And we're debtors to that. We're debtors to that. And we want everyone, we want what somebody once was for us, to let us see a real Christianity, a genuine biblical Christianity. We are debtors to live that for another group of people that were just as lost, are just as lost today as we were. But looking not just for something different, but something that's truly and remarkably and supernaturally different in a Christian's life. And if a person is going to be consumed with their Christian liberties, they will not live that life. They will not do it. They will not have that attraction. Apparently, some in the church at Corinth were trying to have it both ways. But you can't have it both ways. And so he speaks here, and he says, flee idolatry. Idolatry is not a liberty. It's sin. Now, let me close with his final reminders here, verse 23 to the to the first verse of chapter 11, he reminds us of the limitations we're to place upon our liberties. And he's, he's spoken some of these things before, but he, he just wants to remind us one more time before he leaves the subject. He said in verse 23, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I, all things, not all things 
edify. And Paul took everything in life, liberties, everything, and he just asked a simple question of it. Will this build me up spiritually? Will this help me in my relationship with God? Will this help me in my service to the Lord? Will this help me be uh, reflect God in my relationships with other people? And if it didn't meet that standard of helping him spiritually, out it went. He wanted nothing at all uh, to do with it. And Paul didn't write that for effect. I think I'll write this, and that'll they'll think real, I'm a really super spiritual kind of guy. I think I'll put that in the Bible. He didn't write it for effect. That was the standard that he held his life and his liberties to. And you know the impact that that, even that verse 23 has on your heart as a Christian. And I know what the impact that it has on my heart as a Christian And here we speak about this and we speak about the standard that Paul put even his liberties to. And some of us can be in one ear, out the other, and we say, and in our hearts the deal is, I will never do that. I won't even consider that. I will not consider that kind of of a Christian walk. That's stricter than I will even entertain. I don't care what the Holy Spirit wants to speak to me. People think, and increasingly so, that it's just crazy, that it's just fanatical. It's going to drive people away from coming to know Christ. Don't they know that this is the new way? And I'll tell you, maybe it is crazy and maybe it is fanatical. But there wouldn't have been an Apostle Paul apart from it. Not the Apostle Paul we know and we love and that we respect If he didn't live his life that way, then maybe he would have ended up spending the rest of his life in the city of Tarsus as a pool shark at the local billiard hall. Oh, yeah, Paul got saved on his way to Damascus. What a story. That was so amazing how God did that. And he was, like, killing everybody that knew that nobody thought he'd get saved. And he got saved, and then he's blind, and he goes into Damascus, and Ananias comes and speaks to him, and they come, and he speaks to the whole city and the whole everything, whatever became of him. Oh, man, he he's beating everybody at pool there in Tarsus. We would weep. We would weep. Did he, would, did he have the liberty to do that? Absolutely had the liberty to do that. But what if he had done that? And that was the highest standard he had in his life. And do we think that our lives are less important than Paul's? Do the people who know you and love you and know me and love me, they don't have access to Paul. They have access to us. And it's a funny thing after you walk with the Lord for a while. Sometimes you have to walk with Him for decades. And you realize how many people watch for so long, not with a critical eye, saying, I hope that guy fails and and then the big Christian hypocrite will be done with it. I can just put him in the hypocrite category and be done with him. Hey, listen, failing doesn't make you a hypocrite or we'd all be hypocrites. A lot of people watch for a long time because they want to see something different. And they want to see something real. 
And they have run into so many big talkers and charlatans all of their life from the time that they were 13 years old until when. And they want to see something different. And they'll watch for a very, very long time. And our life is just as important. It may be a smaller calling in terms of influence, but just as important and important that we have self-imposed discipline concerning the liberties that we can lead in. Someone will say, well, you know, this whole thing of uh, talking about not all things are, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, not all things edify. Pastor, I think you've already talked about this two or three times in this series of weeks that we've been dealing with all of these things. And you know what? You're right. But I keep talking about them because Paul keeps bringing them up. And if you have sat through all of these weeks and you still have your PlayStation control in your hand for hours a day while your marriage is being neglected and you are about to lose the most important thing in your life, then you're not listening. You're not listening. And Paul knew what he was dealing with at Corinth. Christians in the same environment that we live in on a daily basis. And he said, these people, it's going to be the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth time that they hear this, that they realize this is not sermon fodder. This is real life that they need to take seriously. And sometimes it isn't until we've lost the one, two, three, four most important things in our life that we begin to take God's Word seriously. And he's trying to get their attention. The second thing he tells us in verse 24 is that we need to seek, in terms of limiting our liberties, seek what to do what's best for others over what is best for me. Now, that's just flat out on American. Let no one seek his own, but let each one the other's well-being. You go to the magazine rack in any airport you want to go in or bookstore, there's Self magazine, there's I magazine, there's Me magazine. They're, they're just, they haven't got one called Selfish yet. That's coming. But, I mean, there's all this self-absorption and all. It's a culture that's all around us. Paul says, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. I wish that that verse was on a piece of cardboard right in front of me and I could go hug it. Just hug that exhortation. The reminder that no liberty is more important than the well-being of other people. No liberty is worth that. Back when I got saved, they had a song. I put 1 Corinthians chapter 13, chapter on love, charity, to verse and music. And the song went, If I have not charity, if love does not flow from me, I am nothing. Jesus, reduce me to love. And how I want to love people more than any liberty within my life. Life is hard for people. I don't need to tell you. 
Life is hard for people today. Not everyone, but most people. And I do not want to be a hardship on people. I want my life, including the exercise of my liberties, to be a blessing to them so that when they think of me, my life, and I know you feel the same way, that our lives are a blessing uh, to them. And the Holy Spirit, we just need him to baptize us with a love that is greater for people than for ourselves and even for our liberties. If you read things about famous people, rich people, powerful people, and that's all I do all week long. I spend a half hour putting these sermons together, and the rest of the time I'm just surfing the web and staying so I can be culturally relevant, know what's going on. But it is interesting just having a cursory familiarity with the culture, how many people who have made a name and made a fortune in some particular area in life, and they have, they have taken things to where nobody could ever imagine. They have money they will never be able to spend in a hundred lifetimes, and then you find out that they've left all of it and now going to live this simple life because they look at their life and they say, I want to spend the remaining years of my life doing something for people because I know there I will find what I never found in these other things. And they discover it by accident. They discover it through a glass darkly. They discover it on the basis of conscience. They discover it on the basis of being a creation of God. That same truth is right under our noses as Christians. We don't have to try to discover it. God instructs us concerning it that the greatest life to live is to sacrifice myself and certainly any liberty for the betterment and the well-being of other people. It's the most rich and satisfying life, and when we do it, we feel good, and we feel good for a reason. We feel good because we've been created that way, and we feel good because we've been created in the image of God, and there is still that much of his image upon us. He says, third in verses 25 and 26, there's no need. He says, there's no need to ask, essentially, to ask endless questions about whether food bought in the market, meat market had been previously offered unto idols. So he said, when you go to the meat market and you buy the meat, don't ask, was it offered unto an idol? Just buy it. Find a nice cut, heavily marbled with fat. And uh, not too often, get the lean stuff for the most part, but I mean every once in a while, get the marbled stuff to buy that, take it home, cook that baby up, pray for it, and then you just eat that and enjoy it. In other words, he's saying, don't, you know, concerning these things in life, don't ask too many questions about it. He said, just know that the earth is the Lord's and, and 
the fullness thereof. In other words, no matter what hands that meat passed through or that animal, uh, whether offered to idols or any of this kind of stuff, whatever it passed through to get to the market, the food that we eat has been provided by the Lord for our use. He's the one that's given that. And so concerning some of this stuff, there's, there's an old saying, ignorance is bliss. And here's why. Because if you want to try and find a link between evil and just about anything in the world, you'll be able to find it. When I worked for the phone company, I was uh, involved in advancing telecommunications in my own way. So we put these cables up in the air and the poles up in the air as a lineman and then later as a splicer. I put the, put the, splice the wires together and all of these things. And those phone lines were used to accomplish great good every single day. But also they were used for great evil. So by working for the phone company, was I facilitating, uh, drug dealing, uh, prostitution, uh, mafia work or something like that. You can take anything in life and, and go and look and say, just about anything is being used for good, is being used for evil. Don't investigate it too deeply. Just enjoy it. You go to a taste well market here in town. There is no such place. But you go in there and say, are these people unionized? Yes, they're unionized. All right, what union is it? And then you investigate the union. And then what political and social and moral platform does the union have in terms of the candidates that they are uh, endorsing and funneling mon- money to? And then the, politici- the politicians that the money is going to, that they're for abortion and all of this, and now I can't go to that market in order to buy and all. And so much of the fallen world is like this. And God just says, relax, buy your food, live for God, and let him take care of the big picture. You don't need to go looking for a problem. Number four, in verses 27 through 30, he said, if you accept an invitation, an unbeliever, non-Christian, invites you to dinner, and you decide to go for dinner, and they serve you this great meal, and don't ask, was this Meat offered unto idol. No need to do it. He doesn't say anything. Again, ignorance is blessed. You don't know. Just say, it's from the Lord. You're there to be a witness to them. That's great. Just eat it. But if there's another Christian at the table and they go over and they say, Damien, this was sacrificed to idols. You, me. I was just about to have a great steak and now you just told me something I didn't know and I didn't need to know. But now because he said it, why would he say it? Except that he's got a tender conscience related to it and that if I partake of it, it will be a problem for him. He'll begrudge me as I eat it. So I'm going to, for the sake of his weaker conscience, I'm not going to eat it. Or if the person that's feeding me the meat, the, the host of the banquet says, listen, this was offered to idols, then I don't eat it because now I know something that I'm responsible for here and I don't want him to be confused about where I stand concerning Christ and related to uh, idolatry. And then what you do is you refrain from the steak and you eat your 
artichoke hearts and you eat your salad and you have your asparagus and your broccoli and you eat all those lima beans and you would never eat those lima beans if you had a steak in front of you. But you're starving, so you eat that. And then you go home and what do you do? You put the biggest steak on, on that broiler when you get home and you eat it. Here's the point. Because a liberty stumbles a brother, it doesn't mean I have to give that liberty up completely in my life. I give it up in their presence. In another environment, it doesn't bother anyone or it isn't a problem at all. And then you can express those liberties. Nothing wrong with that. Number five, he tells us in verse 31, he says, Therefore, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so what's the supreme test? This is, this is what Paul is saying here is even stronger than what he said earlier. He said, the supreme test of any liberty that we might desire to partake of is this. Can I do this to the glory of God? Oh, now you're laying a trip on me. No. Can I do this thing to the glory of God? Now, that's a completely different level of Christian life than what some in Corinth were wanting to live, and maybe some in this room. And certainly it's true of Christians all around the world. There's a broad mix of different people related to their commitment. There's a completely different standard for living our Christian lives when we say, can I do this for the glory of God? Can I listen to this for the glory of God? Can I say this for the glory of God? Can I watch this for the glory of God? Do you realize that if God's people took that one verse seriously, he could remove thousands of commandments from the Bible? It takes care of everything. If the world lived by verse 31, you could remove tens of thousands of laws. It is, see, this is the, this is the root problem. This is why there's all the laws is so many Christians want to live separated from the life that's described in verse 31. And you may sit here today and you may say, listen, I love the Lord and I don't doubt that. And yet this seems a little bit overboard to me. I mean, don't you think this, whatever you do, eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But I'll tell you something, if it seems overboard to you at all, one day it won't. One day it won't. You will end up, this is exactly where you're going to end up in life one day. Because something is going to happen in your life and it can be just time marching on or it can be aging or it can be illness or the death of someone that you love. But something's going to make you click and realize how short life is and how fleeting, fleeting fleeting this opportunity is that we have right now to live for the glory of God. And then this verse will become a life verse to us. And it won't be a burden. It will be the desire of our life. He tells us in verse 32, Paul said, in essence, place the value of souls and people's salvation um, above any liberty that we have. We should be willing to forego any liberty that would keep a person from 
seeing Christ in and through us clearly. And then in verse 33, Paul said that he had made all of these things his personal choice and practice related to liberties. He wasn't asking them to do something he wasn't always already doing. And then finally in verse chapter 11, verse 1, and even more importantly, he said, I'm not asking you to do anything other than what Jesus has already done. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. That's what dominated the decision-making of Paul, but this is also what dominated the decision-making of Christ. For we then who, then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves, Paul wrote to the Romans. But let each of us please his neighbor for his good, willing, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul said, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Jesus spoke of himself, and he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, to glorify God. That's what sustains me. That's what feeds me. That's what gives meaning and purpose to my life. Not the exercise of liberties, but what is the will of God, the Father for my life. That's what makes me move and go forward. Jesus said, that whoever desires to become great among you, speaking to us as Christians, he said, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was asked, what are the two great commandments in the law? He said, the first one is this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. But he said, there's a second one, and it's like unto it. And that is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, upon these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. Christian liberties are wonderful, but we must never make them the focus or the goal of our Christian life. Or we will miss the life of Jesus. And that is to miss everything. He is our model. He is our example. Not the carnal Christians who are living in Corinth in that day or in any city today who have made the focus of their Christian life their liberties rather than the focus of their Christian lives, the same thing that Jesus made the focus of his life, to glorify God, to love him, with all of our everything, and then to love our neighbor as ourself. It is a fitting close for this whole section on liberty. Let's stand together and we'll pray. You'd never teach any of this if you were not going right through the book. Who would do it? Who would spend four, five, six weeks on the subject? And yet, it does something good in us, something very, very important. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You see everything that goes on in this world all day, every day, and you see everything that goes on among us as your people. You see the silliness that we fall prey to, 
You see the things that we begin to idolize or think are so significant, but you know it's only because we've lost sight of your Son and we've lost the heart of the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would use not only today, but these last few weeks in this very important area of Christian liberties to have us be just what we need to be in navigating all of it, Lord. And we pray that you bring it to our remembrance as we have need of it in the coming weeks and months and years, that you keep this whole ropes and twines and nooses and bondages of so much of what is even associated with you from tying us down and pulling us away from what this is all about. Use it, Lord, in our lives, we pray. Keep it alive in our lives, we pray. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name.